You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hi everyone, this is your host, Daniel Lee here. And I wanted to give you some background on the actual podcast. So I really like asking people what they do. And I've had jobs as a public accountant, a management consultant, and lately as a public equities investor. And in getting these roles, I had to speak to a lot of people who were already doing what I wanted to do. And it turned out that what the media and industry stereotypes say about the role is not at all accurate to what you actually do. And it was no, this was not to mention that most assumptions people set about uh, a certain individual's journey into that career field was also wrong. Um, this was because it's never as linear as people think it is. It's never as simple as you do A, then you go to B, and then you will get to do C. It's actually much more complicated than that, and that's what I realized after having spoken to over 80 different people to learn about what they did. And something I found out was that a lot of my friends had not learned this yet. Some eventually would because they have already started reaching out to people to actually learn about what they did but I also knew that many wouldn't because cold calling people really frightened them and that's completely understandable it still scares me too but I also am always extremely curious about what other people do and I love hearing about their stories so I figured maybe I can help them out with this podcast and just document what I would normally be talking about with other people. And so that's what this podcast is about. It's me finding people with career journeys that I find interesting and or they have roles that I would like to learn more about. And so I really do hope that I can add value to you in that sense as I go about selfishly using this podcast to learn more about other people and fulfill my own curiosity. So yeah, there you have it. Today's interview is with Michael Kravchik. He is one of the co-founders of Luminary, and that is a new startup company that uses technology to help accountants find great jobs. As Michael says, this is not a very sexy field (laughs) in the industry, but I found his journey to be of great fascination. And I think it's always fun talking to entrepreneurs about what the actual process is like to start a company, because I initially thought this was a very simple proposition of, oh, great, find jobs for accountants. But it turns out that they went through multiple, I think even 10 iterations of company ideas and prototyping to finally get to this point. And so that's been a fascinating story I learned through the podcast. Not to mention that he 
ended up looking for a job in counterterrorism at one point. Um, he's also a big history junkie, and he tried to combine that uh, as being an auditor as well. And so that's been a very interesting turn of events in his career. And it's made it a very fascinating story for me to hear about. And I also do hope that you enjoy it as well. Okay, so hi everyone. Today we're joined by the CEO and co-founder of Luminary, Michael Krasik. Thanks for coming on, Michael. Thanks for having me. All right. And so for the audience members who may not know about your company, maybe not have heard about it, or maybe they heard about it, but they're not quite sure, how would you describe um, your company to them? Yeah, I mean, we do a lot of things. So the high level is that we make CPAs' lives easier and their careers progress faster. We mm. are a platform and a community dedicated to improving the lives of, of CPAs, and that includes CPA candidates and accounting students as well. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that we... Uh, help connect them with uh, an assortment of professional opportunities, jobs, volunteer, um, content, events, education. So it really uh, spans a, a huge swath of different things. And um, probably the one other thing that I'll mention is our Fin in Tech initiative, which is all about um, bringing CPAs uh, closer to the tech community and giving them an opportunity to get involved with and uh, get entrenched into that space. Hmm. No, great. Thanks for that uh, clarification and explanation. And so, you know, before we kind of dive into your career journey, I want to kind of begin from the earlier days in terms of, um, you know, can you describe your childhood to me? Yeah. Um, you know, grew up in Toronto. Okay. Um, went to private school for long enough to realize that I didn't want to go to private school anymore. <laughs> Ended up at, uh, at Northern for anybody who's uh, from the GTA. Um, yeah, relatively, uh, probably relatively boring. Didn't, uh, I, I was, uh, into playing hockey and I did Taekwondo and uh-huh. a bunch of other things like that, but I don't think anything too, uh, too spectacularly interesting for, uh, too many people. Yeah. <laughs> did you, uh, what was your kind of dream career when you were young? You know, when you're little, people ask you, what do you want to be? Archaeologist. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I love dinosaurs. All right. That didn't happen. Why? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, sometimes I think maybe I should have done it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What What about archaeology? Was it that really got you going? I just think I was a five year old that really liked dinosaurs. I don't yeah, know. I don't know. I don't know how unique that was. But, uh, you know, it's like I like dinosaurs. I want to uh-huh. dig up dinosaurs. Hmm. Therefore, I found my job. Hmm. But yeah, right. So you had a dream of being an archaeologist. Yet, uh, so if I looked at, if we look at like your LinkedIn profile, it started at the beginning of you went to um, Ivy, so University of Western Ontario in business, was an auditor at Ernest & Young, then you were a consultant at Prativity, then you went back to school to Carleton, and then you went out to the workforce, went to Scotia Bank, then you did startup at Jester Logic, <laughs> and now you're a co-founder of your own startup. So yeah, nothing, none of that really ties to archaeology <laughs> right now. Maybe a bit of the studying back at university when you're doing more investigative stuff. But um, if, we, if we looked into, I guess, the earlier part, you know, the Ernest Young superativity, it seems, that seems like a very fundamentally um, common move for a lot of accountants who go into kind of 
Vertivity, which does more internal consulting for like, yeah. the audit and stuff. But was that a no-brainer for you, or was it something you actually agonized over? Um, I, it became clear to me really, really quickly in my audit time at, at EY that audit wasn't really where I should be in the long mm. term. I mean, EY is a great company. I, I really only have positive things to say about it as a company, but it just wasn't the right role for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was good from a learning perspective. Obviously, at, at the time, you couldn't get what was then a CA any different way. You had to be at a public accounting firm and... and uh, and, and it was good in that I learned a whole lot about how different businesses operate. I had the luxury, or or maybe it isn't the luxury for other people, but for me, I, I found it being a luxury that um, most of my clients were very small. So the audits that I was doing were, I think the longest one I ever had was like two months. Oh, um, yeah. So that's weird for a big four. Normally, mm. they're, they're much you know bigger public companies. I did some public companies, some private companies, but you know, varying industries. And that, that really diverse background, I think, was probably the thing that I liked the most about my job, other than the thing that everybody who's in audit knows, but everybody who isn't uh, would be shocked by, is that I actually, out of all of my jobs until I got into the startup world, audit was the job where I got to socialize with people the most. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which you don't really think of as the accounting uh, you know, it's not the accounting generalization, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether it's, dealing, you know, working with different audit teams all the time, um, a lot of communication with your clients. Um, if we jump forward a couple of years to when I was at Scotiabank, um, that job was a lot more in my, let's call it my interest sphere, mm. but I was sitting behind a desk all day, every day. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't like that aspect of it. So the one thing that I pulled out of that audit experience was the realization that I probably need to be in a job where... I am interacting with people because I enjoy it. And mm-hmm. it, it makes the day go uh, faster and more delightfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in terms of um, even actually deciding to go into audit, how how has that decision made you? Did you when did you start giving up on that archaeologist uh, <laughs> journey and said, you know what, I'm going to go be an auditor? Yeah, no, that was that was I don't know when I gave up on archaeology, yeah. <laughs> but it was it was a long time before that. I remember at one point I was considering being a vet. Oh yeah, yeah. It it was a bad idea because I'm allergic to cats, but <laughs> I really like dogs, so uh, so that one didn't fly for very long. I you know I decided to go to business school. I don't know, pretty early on. Mm. Uh, I was always fairly strong with with numbers, um, and so accounting seemed like a potentially suitable mix for me. Um, of course, all of the ways that I thought about my career back then, I think about now and be like, wow, that was really not the right way to think about it. Um, I, you know, I personally don't believe that just because you're good at something means that you should do it. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I went to business school and one of the big issues, I talk about this uh, quite a bit, I think that we had at the time at business school, I don't know if it's still the case, but they were, it was kind of like, you know, what do you want to do? There are four options. Accounting, finance, marketing, and consulting. Pick yes. one. Yes. And it's like, well, you know, looking back on that, there's a lot more <laughs> options than that out there. And um, I, you know, it, it was pretty constraining. And so out of those four options, I looked through them and for a number of different reasons, I landed on accounting. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, when I look back on that, I go that whole way of perceiving the job market was was not not the right approach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and, and I think um, the, what was surprising for me when I was in my audit days was 
a lot of people say, oh, you're good at numbers, so you should go into accounting when you're young, and then you go do accounting, like especially audit, and you realize you, you don't really have to be good at numbers <laughs> at all. It's just they've already done the numbers for you, just yep. looking at it. And I actually found that I had needed to be much more numerical back in my BiSight job um, compared to anything. That doesn't surprise me. You know, I mean, <laughs> people say, oh, you got to be good at numbers. It's like, no, I'm pretty sure Excel needs to be yes, really good at numbers. Yeah. You, know, you don't really need to be good at Yeah, that no, at you, you never really do any mental math. People are very surprised. Like, oh, you must be good at math. No, I did not do math. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, you know, you, you did your... Uh, tenure of productivity and you decided to go back to school um, into counterterrorism, which is, <laughs> I would say, a very unique master's. Um, well, but all CPAs did that. Ah, yeah, you know, I, yeah, so I, I have a lot of friends who are in kind of that boat where they're like, okay, I, I want to go back to school and I'll, I think the very common answer is, okay, I, I'm going to do an MBA or they'll look into doing an MBA. What was your mentality when you decided to go back to school, and how? What was the kind of the decision making process that you had? Yeah, I was certainly lost. I, you know, I moved to Protivity to 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 do that consulting gig because I thought it would be a different way to utilize my background in a mm. way that made sense, um, and it did. But it, it wasn't. Again, it was it was too similar to the job I had come from and it really wasn't a good fit for me mm -hmm. and, uh, you know I learned a lot and 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 all of what that did for my career but by the time that I got closer to the end of my tenure there it was just so clear to me that I was not in a place where I would thrive mm. um, you know I'm I'm a really firm believer that when you enjoy what you're doing as much as possible, I mean, every job has good and bad, but right. when, when you enjoy what you're doing, when you get fulfillment out of it, and when you excel, or, or when all of those things are the case, you naturally excel at it. Mm -hmm. And I could do my job, but I didn't see myself being the person that really excelled in that career because I didn't have the passion and the excitement for it. Mm -hmm. And so when I was looking about where to do next. I've always been a big history nerd and uh, and politics junkie. Mm. Um, that from a pretty young age, that was always like I'm I'm the kind of guy that'll sit there and read like a fifteen hundred page book on like, you know, Southern France in the Middle Ages, mm. and you know that's just who I am, and I, I love that stuff, and I really can't get enough of it. So I thought about hey maybe there's a career in there. Mm -hmm. When I started looking at history degrees there didn't seem to be a great path to a career that made sense to me. Mm. And that's what kind of led me into the more political sphere because that's kind of where my interest in politics and history meets and kind of geopolitics and uh, everything around that, which still to this day is a huge interest yeah. point for me and I still enjoy reading about it as my hobby and all the rest of that. Uh, but I thought that maybe that could be a career. Yeah. And so... I had no formal training in it. I don't think I'd written an essay since first year university, whatever they <laughs> like, they force you to take one essay class. Right, right. And I just, I threw my hat in the ring for this program that focused on counterterrorism because it was a, an area that I'm particularly interested in and a region that I, I, I'm quite familiar with, the Middle East. Uh -huh. um, and so that was kind of my speciality in, in that program was that area and that, and that field. And I just kind of threw the application and said, hey, let's see what happens. And uh, I got in, yeah. and uh, and that was that. I quit my job. I went uh -huh. traveling around the Middle East and Eastern Europe for two months, and then started school. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Just as uh, just quick as that. Yeah. Wow. And um, you know, from there you moved over to Scotia, and yeah, 
was that a is there a, I I was actually surprised that Scotia even had a division for counterterrorism people. <laughs> It's um, so the the division was called Global Protective Services. Okay. Um, and they cover everything from. I mean, Scotiabank has a lot of exposure uh, in South America and in mm-hmm. South Asia, uh, a, a lot more in South America, of course. But they were at the time they were considering expanding their their uh, their presence in South Asia as well. And so that unit, really, what they do is. Um, safeguard the assets, the reputation, and the personnel of the bank when they're in any part of the world. I mean, it includes Toronto. So, you know, that group is the group that makes a um, kind of, let's call it a crisis management plan around, like, what happens if a dirty bomb goes off at Bay in, Bay in Adelaide? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what, are the, what, what is the response from Scotiabank? How do they make sure that their people are safe? How do mm-hmm. they make sure that, you know, they, they have a plan in place to, to handle that situation? But for the most part, um, my job was focused on South America um, in terms of the narco-terrorism issue mm-hmm. there, which is a pretty big one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Scotiabank's like the, at the time at least, I think they were the third biggest bank in Peru, the second biggest bank in Colombia. So they have a pretty strong presence there. Um, and uh, and, and uh, Turkey and Thailand, for whatever reason, they, they had a lot of uh, hmm. exposure there. So, yeah. It was it was an interesting different career and it was actually the one that I mentioned earlier I in, loved the subject matter but the actual job was me sitting behind a desk mm-hmm. and that wasn't the right kind of job for me mm-hmm. um, it was a cool different group of people than I was used to working with they're all ex CSIS ex RCMP ex Canadian military mm. um, you know very interesting experience but I realized pretty shortly into that that Again, it wasn't. It just wasn't the right place for me to be long term. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, how how did you deal with that kind of? You know, I, I can imagine that it was disappointing that you were really passionate in the area and you went in and it's the hard realization that yeah, okay, I I really still like this area, but you know, this is not what I had imagined. Um, and how so? Yeah, what was it like actually accepting that? Well, there, there was actually a really funny time. I can, I can actually pinpoint the moment because mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to meet with the boss of my unit's boss. And the Global Protective Services Unit was housed in the audit department of Scotiabank. Oh, really? So technically, I couldn't become my boss uh-huh. because you had to have ex-military or intelligence or police background to do it. Okay. But my boss couldn't become his boss, but I could have because you had to be a <laughs> And that was the moment where I was like, okay, this probably is I mean, and that's a really technical reason that this wasn't the right path for right. me. But, um, but no, you know what? At that point, I had kind of, I had broken away. I mean, everybody called me crazy when I went to go get my degree. Because yeah. Because when, normally when people say I'm leaving audit, it's like I'm leaving audit, I'm going to go be a controller. Right. Or whatever, something more in the traditional finance space. Right. So I had already really broken out of the traditional path. And I, I was pretty certain at that point that I would find, eventually find something that was right for me, but it might just take longer than I, mm-hmm. than I wanted it to. Mm-hmm. And so then, how, you know, you, you mentioned that um, explicitly where, yeah, you did uh, do the unorthodox path of not being a controller. Um, and, okay, you go do a degree and you get a job in that area and then you broke up again and then you <laughs> went to, to a startup. And so there's this pattern that we see. And um, I'm, I can only imagine that, like for me, when I, every time I made a jump, there always is kind of a 
lot of fear of you know yeah. am I doing the right thing and like whenever I thought it I had no job lined up it was just kind of all right I'm just gonna go back into the recruiting world um, and so for you what kind of fears did you have the first time around and did you find a way to fight that the next time around um, I would say that you get a little desensitized to yeah. it now at, at this point I actually I would say that it would feel awkward to me if I was doing kind of like the same thing two days in a row just <laughs> because that's now the, the job that, that I have. It just, it's all what you get used to, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly the biggest fear and one that still continues to exist, uh, you know, if I'm being, if I'm being frank is around financial security, mm. right? I left a secure, you know, pretty um, well, uh, well-defined path that would lead to a, a, you know, a good financial future. Mm-hmm. Uh, my path so far has been very different and it's something that, you know, is constantly something that you think about, especially with housing prices in Toronto these <laughs> days. Um, but, you know, I look at that fear versus the fear of not liking what I do every day and mm-hmm. there's just no comparison between them. I, you know, I very quickly, when I got my first job at, at a startup, the company I was at before this, mm-hmm. very quickly I realized it was the right place for me. Mm. Now, that company didn't end up being the right place in the long term and whatever, but that environment really was where I felt at home. Mm-hmm. And I continue to feel that way. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And I, um, you wrote about this in one of your blog posts where you describe how you kind of found, met the founder and you were kind of moonlighting, you were volunteering <laughs> your time while you were at Scotia. Yeah. And then finally, when they started actually having a bit of money, they said, okay, we can pay you a bit. So you decided to leave. Yes. Um, and I think the, the frank reality that I see with a lot of other people is that you have to take a pay cut. Like you have to be willing to give up something and go yeah. into that. And for you, was that a very easy decision to make? it's never easy it's a sacrifice Mm -hmm. and and you know it's something that everybody it's a very personal decision Mm -hmm. you know people value things differently if there's anything that I have learned um, in this whole process of starting a company is how how fundamentally differently people think about the same thing and and it's Sometimes it's right and wrong, but for the most part, it's not right and wrong. It's mm-hmm. just different. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, like I, I just as a funny little anecdote here, one of the when we started doing our validation testing with Luminary, we'd always ask like, how important is confidentiality to you? You know, do you you know, would you want your profile on Luminary to be public or not? Now we ended up making it not public, but. We had, I, I, there were a number of times where I'd speak to one person and say, oh, well, you absolutely can't have anybody know about it. If you have anybody know about these accounts, nobody will sign up. Mm. And then I talk to the next person and they'd say, well, you absolutely can't keep it confidential. If you keep it confidential, nobody will sign up. Mm. And, you know, it's just, and, and both were so passionate about that being the ultimate truth. Mm-hmm. And you just realize that people just think about things differently. Mm-hmm. People are, we're different. We're weird Human beings are strange creatures that, yeah. you know, are, are very individual and, and you just have to accept that. Yeah, no, definitely. You just can't please everyone. You have to please the, I guess, the people that really want your product best. Get your niche that way. Yeah. And so then, you know, when you went to Gesture Logic, which was the startup before mm-hmm. Luminary, um, you were moonlighting and once you saw kind of promise, you moved over. Now, as you're starting 
luminary was that another thing where <laughs> now you're gesture like logic and you're now volunteering your time and moonlighting for another startup of your own was that the same sequence or how did that uh not, progress not for you and and you know just one comment on on kind of the the like moonlighting at a startup mm-hmm. thing it's actually like the the article that you're reading that from was the one where i was explaining why we built our own placement program to help mm. cpas get a chance to dip their toe into the water the startup waters you know without having to quit their job mm-hmm. and and have the opportunity to see if it's the right fit for them right and the reason that i'm such a huge believer in this and why we spent a lot of time and energy trying to put this together is because that was what allowed me to realize that it was right for me mm-hmm. and make that leap and so when you talk about that fear a lot of the fear was allayed by that three month or four month stint that I was helping out this company just on the side on my own going like wow this is like really cool mm-hmm. and I like it really appeals to me mm-hmm. um, so that night apologize now I forget the question that you asked that went into this oh it came afterwards no no no, no. <laughs> so uh, yeah just oh did I moonlight at, at, at yes. or, uh, for luminary <laughs> no I mean I so I mean, when I was, when you, I think when you're at a startup, you're, you're kind of like all in. Um, and so I had, with my current co-founder, Adam, we had discussed, we, we've been best friends for uh, normally, I'd say 15 years, but I think it's wow. coming up, coming up to 20 now. Um, started telling that story a while ago. Um, <laughs> and, and we had been talking about it for a while. He had always had an entrepreneurial bug. Mm. I had gotten it going, you know, working in this in this company. So yeah, we had like kind of um, gone back and forth on ideas. We picked this idea that we really liked. Of course, as soon as we both quit our jobs, Facebook decided to do it. So that was the end of that particular idea. But um, it, you know, I, I think by that, um, by the time that, uh, you're like that involved in a startup. I was the CFO or COO or whatever you want to call me. Um, you couldn't really do something else mm-hmm. in any real capacity. So mm-hmm. it wasn't until we really quit that we were able to put the energy and the resources into not doing it half-assed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I was actually going to ask you about how you met your founder, uh, your co-founder, and so like, that explains it. Because I was surprised yeah. that I think um, when you see a lot of startups, when they have a co-founder, it's to make up for potentially a lack of technical proficiency. Yeah. Um, and so you're both, I believe Alex is also from more, more of a business sales background. Yeah. And so when you both decided to quit and start your idea, what was this kind of a roadmap that you guys were thinking of? It's been, I mean, it's, a, it's an important topic. A lot of people want to have technical founders, mm-hmm. co-founders, and I agree that would be really really awesome yeah um, you know he's a marketer I'm an accountant and yeah. so neither of us had that and it has been a challenge it continues yeah. to be a challenge um, you know because we're operating in a space where we know we don't know you know even a even a, a, the tip of the iceberg mm-hmm. in terms of the knowledge base there that being said I look at you know the the number one cause of whatever success Adam and I have had has been our relationship. Mm-hmm. It's relatively unbreakable and it doesn't always work with friends, but mm-hmm. we also traveled the world like, I don't know, 13 or 14 times together. Oh, okay. We spent a lot of time together in random weird places yeah. and, and that helped us understand that we're actually really good at not, you know, choking each other out when we get all stressed about stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think the relationship is much more important than the skills, assuming that, you know, 
your the person that you're looking to get into business with has the real founder mentality and capabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a unique kind of person. I'm lucky that Adam is great at that stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he's a very adaptable person. And yeah, he's a marketer by trade, but. I'll tell you, if you have a conversation with him now, unless you really get into the details, you would definitely think he's an accountant. So, oh yeah. Oh yeah. You rubbed up on him. Oh, he can. He, he can. He can talk about accounting uh, better than better than many accountants. So. <laughs> no, I think that was a very uh, good point you brought up, where you, you and Adam had traveled a lot together, and I think. I don't remember who said it, but they were saying um, if you want to test the strength of your marriage, you have to go on a one-week road trip with your significant <laughs> other. And good piece of advice. Yeah, if you don't want to kill yourself after a week, kill each other after a week, then you're good. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah, like, it surprised me how many even people in relationships don't go on trips together. But yeah. once they do, they realize that yeah, this person's not meant for me. And yeah, trips and living with each other yeah. and all, all these experiences. It's like, can you deal with each other mm-hmm. under high amounts of stress? And do you have the kind of trust? I mean, one of the things that I think is so key to our relationship is like any founder with a reasonable head on their shoulders, in, in my opinion, is, is very, very well versed in the fact that they really don't know a whole lot. Um, you can just get proven that so many times over and over again. Like, you know, it, it's, it's really about, you know, being adaptive and, 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 making as good of a decision as you can given the knowledge and information you have and then being able to quickly rebound from mistakes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so when we look at any given situation when adam and i disagree nine times out of ten no i mean really ten times out of ten we haven't had a situation where this isn't the case where we're both well aware of the fact that either of us might be wrong Mm -hmm. and because of that i trust that if adam does something differently than i did it it's probably just as likely to be right or wrong as if I did it. Mm-hmm. And that's a level of trust and respect that I have for him because I know he's a smart guy and a capable guy and he thinks about things in a way that I can understand and, and, and appreciate. And even if it comes from a different place or it lands on a final result, maybe I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. So if he believes in it more strongly than I do, then we do what he thinks. Mm-hmm. If I believe in it more strongly than him, <laughs> we do what I think. Yeah. Hopefully we're more right than wrong. <laughs> yeah. And so you, uh, you talked about how, you know, when you first started, you guys had your first idea, Facebook went into the marketplace and you had to kill that idea. And I yeah. think last time we spoke, um, you said how um, version one of Luminary kind of came out as like your 10th idea. And what you have now is closer to version <laughs> five or somewhere around there. Yeah. And so do you now have you come develop the metric for when you decide to kill each idea or each version? Um, I mean, when it comes to versioning, yeah. you know, it's tough. Is it number? Is it version five? Is it version 25? I mean, we've made so many different little um, changes mm-hmm. in our understanding. I mean, all of it comes from just learning more and more and more. And mm-hmm. so I don't think it's really that. I think when something doesn't work, it actually does stare you in the face. Mm-hmm. And only your... Um, only your desire to not see it Mm. is the thing that stops you from seeing it. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had that, like we spent four months full time, like hundred hour weeks on Mm. an idea that we had that after four months we decided to kill because it just wasn't validating properly. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people may have just said, well, you know, it's a great idea. And so we're going to do it. And you kind of, I think the, the longer I've been in this, in this game, the more I realize that ideas aren't really worth much. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 
does the market actually care and can you execute on it? Mm -hmm. And so it was, that was a really, really hard decision for us to make at the time. But, you know, when it comes to all those smaller movements, I don't think it's really, it's not like it's a pivot and you decide to just totally change course. It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, you find this out and you find that out and you find that out. And as you're learning more and more, you start to shift your way of thinking about it. And that inevitably kind of works its way into the product, into the marketing, into mm-hmm. everything else that you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so then when you first started with your initial idea, what, did, it, did each idea um, subsequently stay within this kind of career CPA domain? And is this more of a constant iteration of it? Um, depends on how far you go back. Like our earliest ideas were around like customer service and stuff like that. So mm. that was totally different. But, you know, we, we got into career stuff pretty quickly because yeah. I think Adam and I ended up doing this because of a sense of dissatisfaction with our current careers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's why we started a business. We wanted to do something different. Mm-hmm. And so we started thinking about our own pain points because that's always the best way to start a business, I think, is yes. think about what you know what you wish somebody had built for you when you were in a certain situation. And... 90% of what we launched with with Luminary was just what, you know, uh, I won't say 90%. I'll say the nugget, the core of it was what I wished I had had when I was in the firm and going through my, my, my designation. Um, the other, probably the real 90% of it came from just talking to other CPAs and mm. seeing if, you know, we went and we spoke to over 500 CPAs before we launched this thing. Mm. Um, one-on-one chats with them to be like, okay, do you care about this? Do you care about that? You can actually build quantitative data out of qualitative and it's much more powerful because you really start to understand your users in a much better way. And, mm-hmm. and, and if you can build something, you know, based on that understanding, it's going to go a lot farther. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very important point to bring out where I had the discussion with my coworker and she was she's a consultant and she was saying how, oh, you know, I... I think I'm analytical, but I'm not very numerical. And I was, and I was telling her, no, you, but yeah, that that's fine. Not all data is really quantitative. You can pull out data analysis from qualitative data. There is yeah. a thing as qualitative data. It's not always numbers. And I think there's a bit of um, somewhat of a data pornography in the kind of consulting <laughs> world where everyone's like, oh, you're so analytical. Everything's about analytics and it's all about the numbers. But no, it's kind of more numbers help you make the judgment and it can yeah. also be qualitative too. I, I like... The, the analogy that I have made in the past is like it's it when you're when you're dealing with customers you should try to almost try to create the relationship with them that you have with like your significant other mm-hmm. so like my fiance hates rain mm-hmm. I don't understand why she doesn't melt in the rain but she just absolutely hates it the second one drop of water splashes on her she just gets super sad mm-hmm. And I don't understand that because I don't have the same feeling, mm-hmm. but I know that she feels that way. Mm-hmm. So I, when it's raining I'll, or when there's a risk of rain, I'll always be the one thing like, okay, we should bring an umbrella. We should get a raincoat. We should, you know, like, what do I do to keep her happy because she doesn't like the rain? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's the same kind of thing. Even if you don't feel like, you know, you're never, let me rephrase this and say, when you think about what to build for your customers, you should only take your opinion as a starting point and even if that, mm-hmm. right? Your opinion doesn't really matter. It's what they want. And, and, and to that, you know, to that way, there's, there's a real qualitative aspect to understanding, you know, 
can you quantify why my fiance doesn't like the rain? No, but mm -hmm. she doesn't. And that mm -hmm. affects her attitudes and behaviors. And if you ever wanted to sell her something, that would probably be a useful piece of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So kind of trying to think about building that same relationship with your users so that you understand them in, in an empathetic way, mm -hmm. right? It's like really understanding what their pain points are, what bugs them, and how do you solve those things? Mm -hmm. And so for you, in terms of your journey so far with um, Luminary, what would you say has brought, been brought up as a, a huge obstacle in your memory that you guys had to overcome? Well, certainly the lack of a technical co-founder. Yeah. <coughs> um, one thing that constantly plagues us yeah. is the lack of sexiness of CPAs. <laughs> I mean, look, we think CPAs are super sexy. But, you know, when you go out there and you go pitch to a VC and you got these people pitching, you know, we're going to transform the world by, you know, I don't know, growing plants out of people's, you know, out of, out of, out of, out of people's backpacks, mm -hmm. you know, to help the environment and feed your children. Mm. And you go, yeah, we're, we're creating an app to help accountants find like great jobs and mm. career opportunities and, mm -hmm. and, you know, see good content that they find valuable. You know, you lose some of that shininess. Everybody's all about blockchain and AI and everything. And we yep. actually have AI in our, in our, in our platform, which is helps on the sexy factor right but that's been a constant challenge but we don't really care because we think that cpas are a lot more sexy than people think mm -hmm. so. no and i think it's staying true to your value proposition yeah. and not sacrificing any of that with the trends yeah. and i think eventually when you know when the tide goes out you'll see all the shift at the bottom anyways uh, just wait until our ico it'll be no, no. <laughs> <laughs> And it's, um, in, as part of your journey, you, um, you guys applied to be part of an accelerator in this 111 accelerator that we're doing the interview in right now. Yep. And what was the thought behind that instead of constantly doing it on your own? Um, um, so, I mean, we're 111 technically doesn't like to call themselves an accelerator. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, they like to call themselves, I believe the word is an innovation hub. And it's kind of true. Like an accelerator would be more of something where there's like constant programming. Mm -hmm. 111's like, I think more of like just a really great place to work where you're surrounded by um, uh, like-minded people, companies that are doing really cool things, mm -hmm. a great physical workspace. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they use their the 111 community in ways that can help mm -hmm. you so you know whether that's connecting like yesterday we went to a pitch that 111 set up to mm. to an investor from uh from the valley and stuff like that so 111 for us is just like it's a really great place to to hang our hats i guess and, and we we love being a part of this community mm -hmm. um another group that we're a part of is the creative destruction lab that's more of an accelerator but still even a little outside of the usual makeup of an accelerator. Mm -hmm. um, and and we appreciate that program because it's allowed us to connect with a lot of really great people. So I think there's different things mm -hmm. that you get out of different uh, groups and organizations in the startup ecosystem. And um, to uh, to quote uh, the uh, my fellow CPA who runs our startup boot camp session with me, Travis Fung, he says it's like you know there's all these things in the in the startup ecosystem and it's like a tool bag and you got to know when to use the hammer and when using that hammer is just going to poke a hole in the wall. Mm. You know, like uh, certain things just aren't worth the time investment to do because you don't get the value out of it, and others are. And it's kind of a case by case thing. Mm -hmm. And right now, then. Um because I'm just not very familiar with this world, I guess. Um, do you have to give up an equity portion for them no. to? Okay. No. no, neither. So CDL, or Creative Destruction Lab, doesn't ask for 
anything. It's free and no equity. Okay. Uh, 111, they charge you for like your physical presence, like a co-working space. Would. Oh, yeah. Um, but there's no like extra charges for any of the other things. So, okay. Yeah. Oh, cool. And so then, um, you know, in terms of getting Luminary kind of off the floor, did you, was it a kind of fully bootstrapped endeavor or did you have to get financing at one point and you, you guys were saying, all oh, right, now we need, we need the funds to really grow and scale? Yeah, we, we bootstrapped until, um, until we, we were in market for about six months. Mm. We had a couple thousand users. We mm -hmm. were making a little bit of money mm. um, and we really needed to hire a dev team. Mm. Is, is what it was, and and so we were lucky enough to find a great lead investor, and then we ended up closing around about ten months ago. Now that was our okay pre-seed or seed or whatever you want to call it. Right. Yeah. And how was the uh, journey to the first sale? Like when you when you guys hit the first sale, like how what was the plan up to it? How did you first sale happened on day one? Oh really? Yeah, we launched day one, and we had I mean, granted, we had kind of pre-set it up to right, some extent. Right. Um, I will I will say with great gratitude it was Crow Soberman the accounting mm. firm mm -hmm. and uh, the people there are awesome and um, yeah it felt it felt really great and yeah. you know they they took a they took a shot at us mm -hmm. on us and uh, hopefully we uh, we were able to deliver we were able to deliver a lot less back then when we had less people in our community than we do now but mm -hmm. um, yeah it was great so then how, how does that how does that kind of discussion go like did did you just Email them and set up a meeting and said, "Hey, so we can find some good candidates for you. We're this new uh, CPA focused." Uh... So it's actually a kind of a funny story and relatively quick. The managing director of Crow Soberman, who's a really wonderful guy, uh, happened to, by complete coincidence, about six or seven years ago, buy me ACDC tickets, oh. and or not really buy them for me. His firm got them for some reason, and yeah. his he's best friends with one of my close friends' fathers. And he gave, and my friend is a big ACDC fan, as am I. And he gave him the tickets to his son, and I got to go to the concert. Uh -huh. So I, you know, we that came up in conversation with my friend, and then found out who the, the guy actually was. And so I reached out to him and said, "Hey, like you bought me ACDC tickets, thank you, and hmm. like I want to chat." Yeah. Um, and so he's he's been a great supporter. Just every couple of months, we have breakfast together, and um, and uh, and yeah, he's you know, it, I'll tell you. The amount of the one thing any any entrepreneur should definitely remind themselves of is that you know a lot of things are hard and you get a lot of no's, but people are a lot of times are really really nice and willing to put themselves out there and help you, and um, you know somebody like 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 uh, that like the managing director of Chris Overman he is a busy busy guy mm -hmm. and he made time for us mm -hmm. um, and we didn't really know him I mean yeah there was some connection but. Uh, and, and this has been a trend that we've seen across our entire experience that people are willing to come out and and offer their time and and connect us with people and their insight and all, all sorts of things that you know you just don't get unless you ask mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. uh, you know you, you you get a resurgent faith in humanity I think uh, <laughs> doing doing something like this no I think that's uh, yeah I think the generosity of people is actually quite under understated in a lot of um, these kinds of situations yeah. and so then for you uh, I think in in back going back to that blog post you mentioned about how you had given some financial advice to your co-founder of gesture logic at that time that <laughs> you would probably have not given to yourself now and <laughs> so what 
what uh, what kind of sticks out as the memorable one uh, where you now when you look at it in hindsight you're like oh man that was really bad advice I would never do that. Uh, you know what it wasn't specific specific advice so okay. much as like I I didn't know how to do financials for a startup. Right. That's actually why we developed this whole boot camp for CPA startup boot camp for CPAs is like it's all the same skills. It's all the same basic skill sets. The, the fundamental bu- building blocks are there. Mm-hmm. But it's just applying them in a new environment. Mm-hmm. And it's just a new set of rules and a different... There's there's different constraints and different ways of thinking about it. And so um, the way that I always like to tell people about our course, because I think it, it fits into this exactly, is it's, it's kind of like a translation course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you're learning a new language, but you still understand all the concepts, but it's just a new way of expressing them and a new way of applying them in a, in a different environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in, in regard to that, um, you did mention that in our previous conversation that one of the biggest challenges of what you're doing now is that no one knows what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and um, At least I don't. <laughs> do, and looking back at it, do you feel that um, given what you know now, there could have been a way to mitigate the amount of not knowing or do you think it's just, it's just going to be a perpetual problem that's going to always exist of being a startup founder? Yeah, no, I think that there is actually, and that's that's again part of why we built these these kind of startup boot camp modules. Right. Is I think there are certain things that you can learn, mm. and that it's great to get all that knowledge ahead of time. And then there are certain things you can't mm. um, that just come with experience and time. And and then you know for the most part, it's not even something that you can learn because you know you get somebody who you know built I don't know had some great growth hack for company A. It doesn't mean that that growth hack is going to work for company B. Right. Really what you pull out of that experience is just understanding the process of finding something that works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you can learn that process well enough, then you can apply it to something different. So, you know, at Gesture Logic, we were building a uh, product for cyclists. And cycling isn't something I particularly care about, quite frankly. I never did. But at the same time, it became a big, I don't know if you want to call it an expert, but at least enough to you know, really understand the sport and everything, and and really it was I even though I didn't care at all about the actual sport, I really don't like sitting on a bike for six hours, <laughs> um, and and the people that do it are like amazing the things that they can do. I have a lot of respect for them, but just not anything I'm interested in. And regardless of that, I really not only did I really enjoy the process of learning what they do and what they care about and how to really build a, a solution for them. In that time, I felt like the most, the biggest thing that I took out of that process was learning how to do that. Mm. And, I, and I took that and I applied it to accounting, which I'm actually happy that I started doing it for cycling, which I knew literally nothing about beforehand, because it humbled me to how much you don't know, even if you think you know, because there'd be cyclists that I talk to that think that they knew everything about it mm-hmm. and you go to talk to other people and they say the, again the complete opposite mm-hmm. and so when I moved into doing it in a field that I knew really well because I am a CPA um, I had a much stronger a I had a, a much stronger sense of like where I'm probably wrong but or how much I'm probably wrong um, but also I, I had a reasonable process for being able to ask people the right kinds of questions, being able to dig into the right insights and, and find out what I needed to build a product that they loved, or hopefully that they love. Um, and it's actually, I mean, it's one thing I didn't mention earlier in our, uh, I hate to, to ramble here, but it's, it's something that I think is really important from a career perspective is the biggest thing that I learned coming out of all of this 
was that to me it, it really isn't um, it isn't about most of the let me say it this way most of the things that people pick jobs for I think are not the right criteria um, the right thing is what what we call a luminary function like, mm -hmm. what are you actually doing mm -hmm. so my example with cycling is like I loved finding out like all about these people and how to build a product that they loved mm -hmm. it didn't matter to me that I wasn't doing it in a field that I cared about. Whereas if you took my job before that, I absolutely love politics and history and counterterrorism stuff. And I was doing that all day, every day and didn't like what I was doing because I didn't like the function that I played within the organization. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe if I was Jack Bauer, that would have been more fun, <laughs> but I don't think I could have done that. Um, so the, 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 the point being that, you know, I don't think it's about the company that you're working in or even the industry that you're working in or any of these, these, shiny objects, you know, the perks, the title, the, all of that stuff, I think is really, really secondary to when you think about what you're responsible for each and every day, what the tasks that, you know, how, what is your day-to-day -day life like in this job? If that's on, it, on, you know, in the right place, everything else will fall into place. Mm -hmm. So you'll get really good at it and then you can get the job, that job at the company that you really love or in the industry that you really love or whatever. You become the best at what you're best at. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm still on that journey of figuring that out. Hopefully I'm good at this, but <laughs> find out what to do next. And and so I just, again, apologies for the ramble here, no, but it's, no. it's a really, I think it's, it's a really fundamental thing that a lot of people miss when they're on their job search. I know I did that when I was doing my info sessions at, Ivy about, you know, whether I wanted to be an accounting or not. I know for a fact that I never once asked one of these people that worked at a firm, like, what do you do every day? Mm -hmm. And you just like, it's so simple, but mm -hmm. you just don't really think about it. You know, you think, oh, well, you know, I get a thousand dollars towards my fitness benefit. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, okay. That doesn't really matter. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, so, yeah. No, I think those are extremely valuable pieces of, uh, wisdomous advice and as we kind of you know I'd love to talk more about it but I think given the time constraints we'll kind of going through the final segment where if your 20 year old self were to look at you now so third year IV I guess at, and you're 20 yeah. um, and you if that Michael was to look at you and say and see your current situation what you've done with your career what do you think the emotional reaction would be do you think it'd be just complete surprise would it um, disappointment or expectate that like you would have expected it Michael can be a very stubborn and skeptical person so I would guess that he literally just wouldn't believe you mm. just be like no not buying it uh, because it I never would have imagined you go through I think you know everybody goes through different kind of psychological journeys as you're doing this and you really change as a human being between 20 and 30 mm. um, so yeah probably a decade ago I would have just been like what are you talking about? You know, I'm going to be at some big company doing some, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Probably not archaeology. Yeah. <laughs> I, you, you never know. We'll see what happens in the next yeah. decade. Yeah, that's right. Um, but, yeah, so then if you were to give, if you could give advice to that 20-year-old self um, or even the best friend of that 20-year-old self, what kind of advice would you give? It's, it's what I just said, actually, exactly. Okay. It's like don't, don't, focus on the shiny objects you know oh like you know this person this company is ernst and young it's a really great big co yeah it is you know i mean it is a great big company and there's lots of good things about it but you know it's amazing how many people came up to me when i was in audit saying like oh you're at ernst and young wow you have such a great job and i'm sitting there being like well i don't really feel that way right and it's because 
I didn't like being an auditor. And so that that's, I think that's the advice that I would give to myself and to anybody else is like, when you're thinking about your career, think about what you like to do every single day and make sure that your job has as much of that as possible and as little of the other stuff as possible. It'll never be perfect. There's always going to be stuff about your job that you don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that you're really feeding into the, from a task perspective or a function, whatever word you wanted to ascribe to it, you know, that, that, that would be my biggest piece of advice. Yeah, definitely digging into the first principles aspect of everything. Yeah. No, um, yeah, great advice. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And I think our audience would really value the advice that you shared. Oh, well, thank you. And yeah, appreciate you having me. All right, great. Oh, and I guess you can check out Luminary at www.luminary, L-U-M-I-N-A-R-I dot A-I. And yes, I read that off of my shirt. <laughs> Great. No, yes, I really do hope the audience members actually do check it. I think it's a very valuable service. And as you mentioned before, I think the Fin and Tech program would actually add a lot of value to a lot of people who are actually struggling or in confusion about yeah. what they should do. Absolutely. All right. All right. Great. Thank Thanks you. a bunch. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com slash podcasts. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com slash newsletter. You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way and included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.